You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Well, here we are at the fourth and final episode of our month-long series, Bettering Ourselves and Bettering Our Careers. And the main focus and message of this series has been on storytelling. From Kate, who talked about how to use our voices and acting skills to connect with casting directors as well as audiences, to Max, who broke down the elements of a good story and how to craft that for print, the stage, or the screen. For today's episode, I'm talking with composer and audio producer Matt Sav, and we're discussing musical storytelling, specifically for podcasts and concept albums, and how it really is a learning process along each step of the journey. I think that a lot of creatives are finding that we're at a point now where we have the means to take production into our own hands. Sure, I don't have the means to create a Broadway show, but I had the means to create this podcast and proof of concept and then get funding to do the whole series. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It or Win Me For Short, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. Each week, you'll learn from fellow actors and creatives as we explore the challenges of trying to make it in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com. There, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter, support and donate to this podcast, as well as get info on other artist resources. Learn about all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. Back in the summer of 2021, I went to a convention called Podcast Movement, and it was there at a conglomeration of podcasters from all around the world that I learned about pod people and met today's guest. My name is Matt Sav. I am from Rye, New York, though currently living in Brooklyn, New York. I am a composer and a music and audio producer, and I currently work in-house as head of production at Pod People. They have worked with some of the biggest companies helping them create podcasts like Vogue, Twitter, and Netflix. Matt has also worked with another production house called Atypical Artists, which deals specifically with audio dramas. Along with writers Brett Ryback and Jeff Lapino Esposito, Matt helped create a podcast musical called In Strange Woods. I was a composer. I was also the music producer. So I oversaw all the music production and then executive produced, kind of seeing a lot of the back end logistical production with, with atypical artists. And from the get-go, we were very inspired by the true crime podcast like Serial and S-Town that NPR does. And we kind of wanted to test out what it would be like to mash up a musical with one of those true crime podcasts. So we knew from the very start there was going to be a narrator and it was very much going to be played up as if this were a real story that you were listening in on through the kind of conventions that were already built into those kind of podcasts. Sounds like a great idea, right? As soon as I left Podcast Movement, I started listening to In Strange Woods. And true crime podcasts are one of the top genres that people are listening to today. But as you'll hear in our conversation, to go from that creative idea to an actual finished product was a long and sometimes stumbling journey. 
Matt and I will also talk about the broader terms of production, composition, and writing, as well as the future of podcasting, as it provides a new way for artists to create and tell their musical stories. A couple of years ago, Entertainment Weekly asked if podcasts were going to be the new medium for musical theater concept albums. And it seems with your show in Strange Woods and the success that it's found that the answer is yes to that. Would you agree that it's kind of the new wave? 100%. I feel really passionately that podcasts are a next frontier for the musical form. Um, The way that I see it is a lot of musical theater fans are already getting uh, you know, and experiencing sh- shows through the cast album, right? So uh, it's so expensive to get to New York to go see shows in person. Even when they're touring, costs can still be prohibitively expensive. So if everyone, you know, in the fandom of musical theater is already, you know, primarily getting the shows through the cast album, I'm really passionate about our existing shows becoming podcasts. I'm passionate about new shows being developed through the podcast medium. I see it as a really nice extension of the concept of a, a cast album. Because within Strange Woods, it really flows almost like a cast album. Obviously, the scenes are extended because you're trying to tell the full story. But I would assume that a lot of the same production goes into, especially around the songs, that would go into making a cast album. Yeah. And there is a great you know, precedence of concept albums being a place for, uh, you know, creating new musicals. Obviously, Town is a great example. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, you know, where really a musical can start in audio form and then be translated for any medium, whether that's a movie or a stage musical. And per your question, I think that the process is quite similar to creating a cast album. That being said, if you are creating in the podcast medium, you want to be writing specifically to audio form. You want to be thinking about the fact that there are no visuals attached, right? I think that narration is a really easy way to add in those visual clues and those context clues. But, you know, I think that that's something that you have to be constantly thinking about when you're writing for audio versus for the stage. So did you find a greater sense of freedom in creating a podcast or did you find it more limiting? I actually think for any creators out there that the podcast medium is incredibly liberating because you don't have to think about the budget of where you're placing stuff or the scene changes, right? You can use either the narration or the sound design to set yourself in the middle of uh, a ballroom, right? With like uh, (laughs) apparently 50 people around, you know, and and just through the sound design, create that impression. uh, And you don't have to worry about extras. You don't have to worry about any sort of the logistics of creating that space. And there are a lot of sound libraries now out there too available that have great sound effects, both in terms of environmental sound effects as well. And when writing the show itself, is that written into, like, you know, insert sound here? How is that script formatted differently than, say, a regular musical? Certainly, yes. You're writing in a lot of those cues. Um, And at the same time, once you get to the sound design stage, much later on in post-production, ideally you'd be working with a sound designer and you, you know, as much as you can write in certain cues, it's probably akin to working with a great sound designer on the stage. Uh, you know, like for example, there was a, a scene in Strange Woods where um, the narrator Brett is chatting with Kathy, who was played by Donalyn Champlin, and our sound designer just decided to add in that Kathy's sipping a cup of tea, right? That had nothing to do with the story, but from a sound <laughs> design perspective, she's kind of clanking it around and she's you know, sipping on it. And it just was so well executed uh, that we left it in. And it was just a wonderful, colorful addition to the scene. 
Now, within Strange Woods, you had some pretty big Broadway names. You had Patrick Page, Beth Level. Now, you know, us stage actors, we are used to filling an auditorium, you know, large theaters. We are bigger than life. So what adjustments had to be made as far as the direction and the performance when all we have is that microphone in front of us? Oh, my gosh. I love this question. So I I must credit Jeff, my writing partner, was the director on this. And we talked about this a lot. So, of course, on the stage, right? Yes, you're playing to an audience. Everything kind of has to be larger than life. I would say the translation um, to podcast is similar to the translation of film. It's much more intimate and close, right? And actually, some uh, you could argue that podcasts are even further, more intimate than film because you're literally in people's ears, right? Because there is no visual. There's no like reading of lips or or anything like that around you. Like all you get is the sound of that voice right on the microphone. Yes. And you have a much nicer microphone right now. I'm I'm currently (laughs) recording from my apartment that is only partially set up because again, I moved here four weeks ago. But yeah, so I would say the big thing is that understanding that you certainly do not need to amplify theatrically in any sense, right? You don't need to be changing, you know, in the way that maybe someone might shape their movements so that it extends and carries through a whole theater um, and might be more emotive, right? To make sure that even if, you know, you're in a large theater, that that diction, right, is carrying out (laughs) across the auditorium. Um, You can be a little bit, I say smaller, um, not in... A bad way. You can be a little bit smaller, right, with your choices and more intimate with your choices. That said, on the converse, I think then a lot of people flip all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which doesn't work, which is that suddenly they're playing to the microphone, right? You know, if I'm imagining that I'm having a conversation at a cafe over a cafe table, am I performing to the mic or am I standing in the right position? Am I directed to be in the right position in front of the mic and yet still imagining myself having that conversation across the mic? talking to a person at that proper distance across the table. I think that that is the balance then of you're still cheating to the mic as if someone on stage would cheat to the audience. And yet at the same time, you're having a really organic performance that's not to the mic or not trying to be extra emotive because you know, you're know you trying to play it up for the people listening, but you're creating a really authentic moment that just happens to be perfectly captured on mic. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's something similar. Obviously, I don't have that type of production here with this podcast, but it's the same kind of thing. You and I are looking at each other via Zoom, and so I at least have you there. I'm not asking these questions to my microphone. I'm asking them to you, and we're having a conversation. Yeah, but at the same exactly. time, we recognize that you listening are there <laughs> and a part of this just, just as much as uh, as Matt and I are. But when it comes to that performance, yeah, that, that's something that I've noticed even in my own like voiceover auditions, that when there needs to be an, an anger or when you need to like be very boisterous, there's a way of nuance around it. Whereas the stage, stage you can go 100%, but on a microphone, you have to literally balance what your voice is doing and what the microphone can pick up. Oh, 100%. And I think it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, of course, for commercial voiceover or for narration, particularly, yes, there's there's a certain art, I think, playing with the mic, specifically when it comes to dialogue in fiction podcasts. That's when you really want to make sure that you are acting in a way that is not just about playing with the mic, that it's also about performing uh, an authentic... And this is a taste thing, right? So other people might disagree. But I love when a mic is just perfectly placed to capture a very authentic performance when it comes to fiction podcasts. And in the recording of In Strange Woods, did you actually have actors together in the studio or, or was it recorded separately? How, how, how did that work? Oh, I know everyone's so tired of hearing about COVID, but <laughs> we were going into production 
March of 2020. So we had been planning Brilliant for months. Planning. Brilliant planning. Yes, production <laughs> where we were going to have Brett, the narrator, and, and my co-creator um, have everyone in the room and to stage it out, you know, as if he were recording with the shotgun mic, just like the NPR producers would oh, be. Oh, that's fun. Um, and so it would have had this really beautiful realism to it. So instead, we ended up sending out these elaborate rigs to everyone remotely, to people upstate, to people in the desert of Arizona, people across the country, people internationally. It, it, 20 cast members in total, we sent out rigs to. And we actually sent out computers to them too, so our engineer could hack in. And once they connected in, control the sessions remotely. Wow. Yeah. That is commitment to the production. So obviously that added a lot of extra time and cost to making what, what could have been probably a more simple audio production. Unfortunately, yes. But we were really happy that we pushed through and found ways to make it work. In a time where it was such a dark period for, for theater, it was so nice to be working with other musical theater people, you know, on a project that we knew could press on in, in that extremely dark time. And so we felt both incredibly grateful for that and just appreciative of, you know, all the people that we got to work with on the project. The one audio drama that I got to be a part of, I was giving some basic direction and was just told to record my lines. I did like two or three different versions of each line and then gave a break. The next two or three takes of the next line. Is that kind of the process you went through for this? Definitely. Yeah. Especially because we were recording people one by one. So I think that uh, obviously it's nice and ideal if you can get, if people are having a two-way conversation, you want to get them in the same room and have mics set up. But when you're doing it remote and one by one, that is the process that we did in the end as well. In the broader scope of it, how do you think podcasts will both influence and change musical theater writing and production going forward? To me, my hope is that it actually changes the barrier to entry, both for creators, because I think it's a really accessible medium. We obviously went all out on production, but I think there are simpler versions where people can even record live to tape. You know, if they if they have a great musical ready to go, why not just record it live to tape and put that out and see if you can generate, you know, a little bit of a following, some excitement around your idea. And I see it on the final step of how we distribute musicals out into the world. I see it as a great equalizer as well, because again, it's going to allow people who can't access Broadway, who can't access the tours to experience the full story. I would hope that on the writing side, people will be excited about learning to write for the audio form and continue to tell more experimental stories and push the boundaries there. And similar to production, you know, I think there's just like, this is the tip of the iceberg, right? There are just a a handful of musical podcasts at this point, but my hope is that we start to see more and more popping up. And then that, you know, they're able to travel from the audio medium to stage, uh, be adapted to film and TV and have, I don't want to say greater lives, but broader lives. Is that something that you have in mind for In Strange Woods to one day be on a stage? Definitely. Uh, we are currently actually pitching it as a television uh, limited series because it's already an episodic form. There are five episodes, so we feel like it translates really well to a television miniseries. That being said, down the line, we would love to adapt it to stage. It, and we were kind of talking about, you know, in the limited series version, you still get, there are so many side characters, right? So you're still going to get all of their stories. That's more common on television. Whereas if, we're, if we were to do it on stage, we wouldn't really need to pare it down to Peregrine's story, the main character. But we are excited to explore that at some point. Absolutely. What was the biggest surprise for you as you were creating the show? What kind of struck you that you weren't expecting? I, as a musical 
writer. You know, again, I'm primarily focused on composition, but I work closely with lyricists and book writers and love to be involved from the initial steps of creation. It's just such a long process, right? We spent a year from developing the initial concept, Brett, Jeff, and I getting together to having the first pilot script together. We probably spent three to six months after that, probably six months pulling together the team to make the pilot alone, right? And then and to get, you know, Patrick and to get Donald and Champlin and we didn't have Beth at the time uh, involved. And and I remember, you know, Donald and Champlin coming to my my apartment. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, I'm so nervous. There's she's like crazy ex-girlfriend. We all know and love her. And um, she was so kind and so generous to be on the pilot. So that was a six-month process of creating the pilot. It was probably a year-long process of shopping it around and then um, getting the contract signed. And then it was a year-long process of producing it and distributing it out in the world. So all in all, it was about three and a half years. Uh, you can check if my math's right, <laughs> fact check. But um, I'm shaking my head because you know we all know that on the stage side that musicals can take years and years, years and years. But but even for a podcast, which is essentially hit record, get a microphone, hit record, and go. Well, I'd love to dig into that and share some of the steps of the process too, because there are many steps. Um, I'm sure and there it are. It might be helpful if anyone's trying to do one themselves. Yeah. So in terms of yeah, just digging into those steps, I think the first few steps will be familiar to anyone, you know, obviously coming up with the developing the creative concept itself, the characters, the world, the story arc for the greater series, and then digging into what the pilot is, um, actually doing those in reverse or figuring out what the pilot was, and then thinking how it extends to the greater series. So all that development works familiar and then scripting it out. But in terms of production, Typically, what happens is that you'll need to do recording first. You'll need to decide a lot of like back-end logistics. Is it a SAG project? Is it not a SAG project? And then you'll need to plan out a production schedule. Uh, and then you'll want to do, obviously, recording first. There's a lot of decisions that go into how you're recording. Are you recording everyone remotely, separately? Are you recording in the studio? Also, you're going to need to prepare for both the dialogue scenes and prepping for those. And then you're going to need to prepare for the music recording. So that involves obviously taking your compositions and making sure they're fully arranged. What instruments are you going to have versus what MIDI or samples are you going to use? You want to come in with some like demo tracks ready to go that people can sing along to that are all time locked. And then after you go through the recording of both the music and the um, dialogue, you'll go into the edit process. And then once you're happy with that, adding in the sound design, finishing the music production, mixing and mastering both the music and then the podcast at large. Uh, and so, yeah, there are a number of players involved in that too, right? Um, it can be uh, you know, a, a laborious process. But that being said, there is the version too where you have a great musical, you've already written it, just record it and get it out there. Don't worry about all of those steps. Yeah, it was so interesting as you were going through that process. There were so many things that pulled from TV world as far as production, from cast album recording, a little bit of stage, obviously, when it comes to to figuring out the transition from dialogue into the songs. So it seems like it really pulls from a lot of these creative mediums all in one. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think because it's uh, an industry that is taking shape as we speak. Um, yeah, there's there's people coming in from all industry. There's sound designers who come from a film TV background. There's theatrical performers who are coming from a theater background. There's, um, you know, producers who are coming from video or any medium, really. And so people are bringing all of these different 
talents, skills, workflows. And it's really cool to see them kind of all mesh together. And you know, you probably would talk to someone else producing a podcast and they might go about it in a completely different order of operations. But uh, that's sort of the order of operations I found that works best. You and I had talked before about one of the specific choices that was made in the the, the sound and, and the recording of, of your different characters. And each of them had their own kind of sound quality as, as far as like there was this one guy who was always on the phone. So it sounded like a phone. And so you recognized him. And I, and I brought up the fact that, well, there was the one time where he didn't sound like he was on the phone. I was like, who is this guy? Who's this new character? And then I realized, oh, it's the same. So it's stuff like that, that in audio, I'm listening for a certain sound quality, not just the voice itself. And so when it, when it was thrown off, then I was like, wait, who is that? So it's those kind of sound decisions that really go into recording, because obviously we can't see the faces. We don't know that now it's this girl talking versus this girl or this guy over here versus that guy. Yep. And so when you're casting too, you do want to think about what tonal spaces people's voice fill, you know, high, low. We had some characters who did sound very alike. And so then you know, there are subtle tricks you can do in terms of just subtle panning people more to the left or to the right to kind of create some space between people and make it clear where characters are sitting in the space. But it's a really good point. You've got to be very carefully thinking about also what mics you're using. And uh, another interesting specific in terms of sound quality is I think how you transition from dialogue to song. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Like the song recording is its own piece altogether. 100%, yeah, so so from a recording standpoint, the way that we did it was that, yes, we'd always have them record under their lines leading right up into a song. For songs, we'd always have them start with the lines, a few lines before, right, into the song. And then we would stitch those together using whatever... Uh, sort of moment was best. If, if the, the the dialogue cut uh, ended up being like the most helpful for that transition, we'd use that. But if they gave a really killer, perfect drop into the song in the song recording, we would use that moment. But from then an editing standpoint and a sound design and mixing standpoint, it's really tough to navigate the fact that for songs, people expect this highly polished sound and they expect reverb and they expect compression and they, you know, the, the modern taste is highly produced for music, right? But do they expect that for a musical recording? I mean, I, granted, we're listening through our headphones, so there is that idea. But at the same time, I would think from a musical theater perspective, we're used to the sound being the same, like they're talking, they're talking, now they're singing, and it's not going to be produced. It's going to be that live vocal quality rather than any processing. And and that's so true, but there still are, even on cast albums for musicals, there still is a fair amount of reverb and there's a fair amount of compression, which kind of makes the volume a little bit tighter. And the fact that it's not quite as dramatic as pop music where you have like auto-tune and you have insane effects on the voices. But at the same time, it is it is a subtle difference, right? Then between when you're hearing a really natural conversation versus you're hearing the song. So so we did kind of bridge the gap by often utilizing like the first verse to kind of sneak some of those effects in. So on the first verse, you're kind of still in dialogue treatment from a mixing standpoint. And then it kind of slips in, you add in the reverb, you add in a little bit more of the polished sound. So by the time you hit the first chorus, suddenly you're in the song world and it sounds a little more polished and beautiful. 
Yeah, and thinking back to listening to it, yeah, I, I would say that I didn't notice a harsh transition because, like, in the old movie musicals, you'll notice that they're talking, you know, they're kind of talking like this, and then all of a sudden they're just, and it's just like, where did that, like, just completely different voice. The orchestra is so much louder than anything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I won't call any TV shows out, but there are a lot of TV shows that are egregious with how they transition <laughs> into musical numbers. It sounds like an entirely different mic was used and entirely different mixing settings are used. It just doesn't make any sense. But Because for you, your background is actually in audio and digital production. You had your own studio at one point. So how does that technical knowledge help you then within the creative, artistic process of writing a show? I mean, this gets into, I think, the themes of your show at large and just the journey of being a creative, because I think like a lot of people nowadays, I got into the technical, I got into the like logistical producing, all of that, because I couldn't find people to make my own work, right? So I was frustrated from a young age, right? And it actually started in college. My friend and I were writing these musicals and we didn't know what to do with them. So we were like, well, maybe let's film them and put them up on YouTube. Um, so through that, I kind of learned how to do music production. He learned how to do video production. Um, and we put out through this, it was this um, YouTube channel called The Online Musical. And we did very silly short videos like Pokemon the Musical and uh, Where's Waldo the Musical. That one we took down, it was awful. Um, <laughs> but so I, I learned the technical because I just wanted my creative to get out there. And frankly, I was not very good at the technical at first. Um, but over the past, I mean, geez, now it's been almost 15 years, right? since I started that, it's become an expertise for me. And it's actually really allowed me as a composer when I'm creating demo tracks, I feel really confident now creating my own demo tracks and that's really empowering. There's like no one standing in the way. And that took many years to accumulate that equipment and to accumulate the knowledge how to utilize it. But I think that a lot of creatives were finding that we're at a point now where we have the means to take the production into our own hands at least getting an idea out in the world initially. Sure, I don't have the means to create a Broadway show, but I had the means to put together the tools to create this podcast. And we put together enough of a proof of concept that we were able to then get funding to, to do the whole podcast series. And hopefully that's enough of a proof of concept to then make you know a TV or stage version. And so I'm really glad that over the years I've learned the technical and, and I think it's finally now 15 years later paying off. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think a lot of us are having to realize that, you know, we can't just be actors. We can't just be singers. We can't just be composers. We really have to incorporate these other avenues, whether it's creating a self-tape, whether it's like myself and doing a podcast. There are these other technical skills that we need to learn so that when an audition comes in, we can we can do it quickly. When you get an idea for a song, you know how to produce it so that you're not having to gather 17 people in order to do one thing. And it, it, I really believe more and more that great talent can shine through whatever production quality it is. Uh, because, you know, even when you think about those self-tapes too, right? At the end of the day, uh, when you see someone just give a heck of a performance, right? It doesn't matter if it's recorded on an iPhone. It doesn't matter if it's recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe me, I mean, us, us actors, we like to think that. And it's like, you know, I really felt that moment. But then someone comes along and they have, you know, like their light set up and they have a lavalier that's hit underneath their set, you know, so their sound is great. And then they have this reader that's also a dramatic actor. They're not just using their mother. You know, I mean, the, all these things that can go into it. And I was just in, you know, Zoom is now the way. We 
we don't go in person. We we do Zoom auditions, and I'm in the quote unquote waiting room with everyone else, and I can see the other guys that I'm up against for this commercial. Oh my right. gosh. I can't believe they right. did that. <laughs> so I like see them. Well, I mean, in, in person, you see them out in the hallway anyway. Sure, sure. But, but they have more control of that on right. Zoom. But but no, so I'm I'm there and I have my nice curtain. You know, I'm fine. I'm I'm well lit. You can see me. And then this other guy pops in. He has like this textured blue screen behind him. There's like some light that's kind of just glowing behind him that creates this circle effect. And and, and he is like crisp and clear on the I'm like Okay, well, just give it to him because he can make the commercial for you in his own home. Oh my gosh, you know, yes, so I mean, yes. it, it, unfortunately, it's a balance. Yeah, yeah these kind of technical elements. Uh, they can affect how we're perceived, whether it's an audition, whether it's you know a concept album. These technical elements can be really important. They can. I think it's um, also though interesting because a lot of the times people think of technical elements as oh, just let me get better equipment, right? But at the same time, there are concepts you can learn that actually make you look and sound a lot better. Uh, for example, right with lighting, it's like we all know now that front lighting, you know, it's just like pour it on, pour it on. <laughs> Mariah Carey taught us many years ago. We should have all heeded her lesson. Just put a big light in front of me, and you know, I'm good, and I'll look great. But also for sound, right? It's like you want to make sure that you're in a small room. You want to make sure, you know, so that if you don't have a great mic capturing it, at least there aren't echoes that are muddling up your diction, right? That doesn't require necessarily a better mic, but it requires you picking the right place in your apartment or finding the right place outside of your apartment. Unfortunately, if you know if you only have one big boomy room, though I don't know who has large rooms in New York. So probably everyone's good there. Well, <laughs> well th- those of you listening who have heard other episodes, you know when I've had guests that have great mics set up and when, like I, I had a, a producer, he's a, a well-known Broadway producer, but he literally, all he had was his office that sounded like it had zero carpet in it at all and just his computer. So it was just, just, just every time, time he taught, taught, it was just so mean. But at the same time, what am I going to tell a big Broadway producer? Um, I'm wondering if you can get closer and please, please use your headphones. <laughs> I mean, so I, I got as good a quality as I could get, but it is interesting how different setups and in the world of Zoom and podcasting, you it, every episode is different. <laughs> and let me be clear for all those salty listeners out there saying, but Matt, you sound awful. Again, I just moved in four weeks ago. Please be forgiving. I have no mic set up. I'm in an empty apartment. So go listen to In Strange Woods and judge me on that sound quality, which was all recorded remotely, not on the sound quality of this interview. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Yes, now you got to even do a little part in Strange Woods. You got to to come on just for a little cameo. A cameo as a record player vocalist, yes. So um, in Beth Level's episode, she puts on an old record player and plays one of her favorite old songs. And so I got to... You're the favorite old song. <laughs> I am the favorite old song and I uh, got to use some of that old jazz training because all of us, we come from musical theater performance backgrounds. Now the brave and the talented stick with that. Um, the rest of us go behind the scenes and do writing and producing and that sort of stuff. But I did at some point study jazz vocals. So it was fun to, to whip that out. One of the main themes of this podcast is how creatives may be focused on one particular art form, but have to branch out in other ways to make a living. This podcast certainly provides a creative outlet for me in addition to acting and singing, but it's your support and donations that go a long way towards maintaining a weekly production schedule. 
So visit whyillnevermakeit.com and click the support button to learn how you can help contribute to the continued work of this podcast. Now, you got your start in Los Angeles as far as, uh, you know, production, and you, you had your own studio out there. But now you're based out of New York. And so what prompted the move and what differences have you encountered going from one coast to the next? Hmm. Well, I, I grew up in New York. And a lot of the reasons I came back to New York were actually more personal rather than professional. Um, I just love New York City. Uh, I love the energy of it. I love how you feel like you're a part of this like beehive of humanity. And I just love the energy. And in LA, I personally just felt like it could be a little bit isolating at times, uh, even though I was making great contacts professionally, just the way the city is set up. You know, and the fact that it wasn't home based in the way that New York was, I, I felt a little bit isolated out there. Um, so when the pandemic hit, I ended up coming back here, quarantined before I saw anyone, but ended up spending that time back home. And it just made me realize how much I miss New York. Our personal lives dictate a lot of wh- where our art is going to be. So it makes sense. But on a professional note, I did think being out in LA was great for making a ton of industry contacts, particularly in podcasts, particularly in film and TV. You know, and there were some great smaller theatrical communities out there. I know Musical was a really nice community. They do monthly performances that showcase various musical theater writers out in LA. So I loved going to those and participating in that. Um, but it just feels like the theater scene and and the musical scene is just so much more vibrant here in New York. And it's always been that a lot of, you know, the contacts I have in the musical world are, are back here. So I'm just really excited. Uh, if anyone's hearing this and wants to work on some musical podcast together, please reach out because I'm so excited to be back in New York with the dear people of this city. You've mentioned energy and there really is just a uh, unique energy, especially in the theatrical creative space here in New York City. There is such an energy that uh, I have not found in many places. I'll find it in certain corners of like this regional theater or that place that, that brings it. But the city as a whole, I mean, it's it's been, uh, you know, missing for the past year and a half or so with COVID, but it's slowly coming back. So I, I look forward to that energy kind of resurging itself ah, and, and showing up again. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Now, when it comes to writing, you have worked with a writing partner. You had mentioned uh, Jeff Lupino Esposito, and you've worked together on several projects. How do you like the collaborative process versus working solo? I love the collaborative process. I, it's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to musicals. I think if you zoom out and think about the musical art form, it's such a beautiful intersection of so many various crafts, you know, from the sound design and all the visual elements, right? The set design and the costumes and the lighting design. And then also, you know, you have all the performance aspects, you have 
the music composition and arrangement and performance. There's just so many art forms that are meeting that how can one person possibly do that alone? Um, and, you know, there are the few that do, but what I find so beautiful about it is that it, it demands collaboration, right? The musical form demands collaboration. And I think it's such a beautiful testament to what humans can do when they come together around a central idea or story. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've loved collaborating with Jeff for over, you know, 10 years went on to write a musical, a fun, campy musical about the history of Nantucket for a theater workshop of Nantucket, as one does. It, it was playing for a couple of summers, uh, sold out summers back in uh, the times before the pandemic. And then it obviously shut down, but we're hoping it comes back. And that's just like a really fun piece that's meant more for tourists and locals to kind of celebrate the history of the island or learn about it. And then we worked on In Strange Woods together. And, and I think it's interesting when you work with someone that long at this point, I don't even know if our feedback is helpful because we uh, really think the same things, right? Everything I've learned about lyrical writing and book writing, I've learned from via Jeff, right? And everything he's learned about music, he's learned via me. So I don't know if when we give notes anymore, they're actually helpful, which was one of the reasons it was so exciting then to branch out and work with Brett, uh, you know, as kind of a third mind on In Strange Woods. And and then through that process, I learned so much. I think I have like a very minimalist approach to pare down everything to the simplest possible chords and melody, which is very antithetical to a lot of like musical theater writing, which can be let's extend this to make it as big and grandiose as possible. And, you know, I think Brett had a lot of those tendencies, which really work nicely when we're going back and forth on which moments to stretch out, which moments to simplify. And I just learned so much from Brett in that process. I, you know, as, as an example, come and find me which is in the first episode and it, the central characters singing this song about losing your brother said, you know, if something ever happens, come find me, come and find me. I'll know what to do. Um, and, you know, I'd kind of presented it as this simpler pared down song and it certainly starts that way. And then Brett was like, Oh, well, what if we do this modulation and then do this dramatic, you know, change up in the arrangement for the final part. And, you know, and, and it just was so fun to see him then stretch out that idea. And, and when you hear, if you listen to episode one of In Strange Woods, you can kind of hear where it landed. But yeah, I just think if you continue to operate in a vacuum, how are you going to grow? How are you going to learn from other people? I, I know that some people love to kind of get alone. They like to be in their own little space and, and, and create, create, create. Then they'll bring it out. Do you work that way? Or is it with Jeff right beside you and you're kind of bouncing ideas and, and then with Brett with In Strange Woods? What was that process like? Such a good question. I, I mean, I personally think that in the creative process, you need those moments where you kind of go off and just do your thing um, without anyone sort of sitting there judging it. Someone wants gave me such great advice. And it was advice that I think applies to all creative pursuits, but it was specifically around writing, right? And they were saying, as a writer, I try and ha wear two hats, but never at the same time. So I have my writer hat, where I'm just kind of free-flowing without judgment, just getting it out. And then I have my editor hat that I put on, and okay, I go and I edit it from more of a critical lens, a thoughtful lens. And then, okay, oh, I assess what changes I need to make. Let me go fully back into writer mode and just sort of non-judgmentally make those changes, right? Now, how are you at taking those hats off one at a time? Because I know that when I've tried to write my own stuff, both hats are on and I'm competing with the editor going, just let me get it out. No, but that's, <laughs> no, but that can be better. I know, but it's going to, no, I need to fix that. No, but I want to, so I, I have this battle within myself and I'm trying to write. 
Yeah, I I think that it is important then just to like check in with yourself at those moments and say, oh, wait, no, this was my time allocated for just getting it out on paper. Uh, Hey, editor, you know, please get out of here. Step out of the room because I'm trying to just get these 10 pages out. Right. For me, it's with music. It's like I'm trying to just figure out a melody like I'm not going to be able to open my mouth and it's going to be the perfect melody. You know, I kind of see composition like the way I approach it is like a potter's wheel right where I like kind of spin through all these melodic ideas and I'll okay or I might if I start with chords right I'll play these chords I'll make subtle adjustments and I'll kind of loop them and say oh no okay well, wait let me change this uh you know and same with melody you know you kind of have to just get in that non-judgmental space and just let it out <laughs> and then you can come back and and say you know and say you can record yourself right and then listen back and be like wait 95 percent of that is crap but oh this idea is great let me build out on that and in that moment i just went from the let it out non-judgmental mode to the then the editing mode where i'm like okay no this is actually the moment then i go back into non-judgmental mode and i'm like oh let me blow out this idea this little pattern and see what happens you know and then i go back into editor mode and i'm hopefully like oh that's actually pretty good matt you know uh it sounds a little wild, but um, I think that separating out those two parts of the process really helps because for me, I've just found it by start editing as I'm in that creative space and judging my work and not just operating from a place of like utter, honestly, like kindness to yourself, right? Of just saying, yeah, like, and this, and it's fun too, right? To just let yourself loose and not judge it, not worry about being perfect and knowing that you can come back later then and have that salty editor mode on. It also speaks to the fact that you have to let your thoughts, your creativity kind of run wild, because if you start editing too soon, had you let it go, then three steps down the line, you get to that idea that you really want to hit. But if you edit it off too soon, then you never go that two or three steps beyond to get to that idea you want. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree with that more. When it comes to your work with Jeff, then, does he work as kind of a co-editor? And obviously you with him as well, so that it's not just your own inner voice, but now you have this other voice coming in and editing as well. Yeah. So I think we always start, I guess, if we're using the editor in the creative mode, we always start actually in editor mode. So we'll talk through, okay, what's the purpose of this song? Where does it sit? What kind of genre you know, do we want to pull from? Because we really like to pull from all sorts of different genres of music. And then for Jeff, you know, I'm kind of helping him think through, okay, what are the themes of this? What are some lyrical motifs we want to pull out? How do we want this to move the story from A to B? And so we'll start in the editor mode and then we'll go off and we have to decide, right? You have to decide where you're starting. Are you starting with the lyrics? Are you starting with the music? So I think then we would go off for me, if I was starting with the music, I would go exactly through that process by myself, switching between like, you know, generative creative mode and then edit creative mode, edit until I kind of have shaped something that I'm really happy with. And I think that what's fun is like for as a composer, when I'm in that editor mode and setting myself up, I'm thinking critically through all the different various layers of that craft of composition, right? Of, okay, how am I utilizing the melody from a rhythmic standpoint, from a pitch standpoint to like really enhance this idea? How am I using the chords from a compositional standpoint? When you go into editor mode, analyze it from every layer. But then, you know, when you're in creative mode, kind of just make those more visceral decisions. So then I'd bring it back to Jeff. We kind of analyze it together, figure out what changes need to be made. And then once we're happy, pass it off to the other person to fill in the lyrics or vice versa to do the music. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you. it seems like you've really found a home creating these stories. And so a lot of your work has been behind the scenes. But I do want to bring up the fact that you have stepped in front of the camera on certain occasions. And <laughs> I, I would say that one of your biggest might have oh. been Pitch Perfect, maybe. Oh gosh, yes. I um so <laughs> I don't know how you found this, but uh I I I think the most embarrassing thing about me was that I was in an acapella group. I admit it. Yes, I was in That's an acapella wrong with group. Acapella. I mean, I mean there have been groups, you know, like Take Six and uh Pentatonics, obviously, right now. Oh my gosh, so- professional acapella groups, nothing embarrassing about that. College acapella groups, a lot to be embarrassed of. Um, but I was in this group called the Hullabahoos. And funny enough, the guys group in that movie is based on the, my college acapella group, the Hullabahoos. So this GQ reporter to create the book was following around these three groups and kind of the mischief that they got into. And so one of the three groups he followed was the Hullabahoos. When they made the movie, they very nicely invited us to be in it and actually record the song, The Final Countdown, and help perform that in that scene. Um, just as a kind of nice nod to the fact that... <laughs> you know, the group was based on us. So. How fun. Now, what was that like? Because obviously you're, you're just used to doing these uh, competition stage shows, but then all of a sudden you get this like movie thing. How different was that to be on camera now? I mean, this was many years ago, but it was so glamorous. You of know? course. Uh, we t- well, they didn't pay for our travel. We took an RV down to get there. So that was not glamorous because it was like 16 of us in a small RV. Um, but uh, then when we got there, yeah, it was just so cool. It was the first time I'd really seen a large scale movie set and they had cranes and they had beautiful lighting. And a funny thing was like the audience, you know, they had the real live people in the audience for maybe the first 20 rows, but then behind that were just cardboard cutouts of people, right? <laughs> that they were going to CGI in. And yeah, it was just a real, it was a nice experience. It was a fun, fun thing. And then we would get residuals too, you know, which they weren't much, but the fact at that age, we're like, Ooh, you know, you get some residuals and they've tapered off over time. Oh, oh, oh yes. I now have stuff from 10 years ago. That's 54 cents. I literally get checks that are just pennies. Exactly. Yes. Yes. How fun. Um, How fun. Well, this has been such a joy to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you were able to share your, uh, your insights into composing and what podcasting is becoming. So I appreciate you sharing with us. Well, I so appreciate everything you're doing. And and I, I think also just can so relate to when you're getting your own product out there in the world, right? Your own baby. And, and you've done that with this podcast across so many episodes. So I just want to say also hats off to you as well. And I'm just so appreciative that you had me on to be a part of the tapestry on this show. A big thanks to you as well for listening and joining these conversations as we all learn to better ourselves and better our careers. For more on Matt and his podcast musical, In Strange Woods, check out the links found in the show notes. And of course, don't forget about the final five questions, which is available as a bonus episode to those who support this podcast. Another important way to show your support is by telling your friends and fellow artists about Why I'll Never Make It. If you received any benefit or insight from these conversations, then please share them with those who you think could also benefit from these episodes. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. Incidental music featured in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. 
Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com.